Today we're talking about something very interesting, a question that is asked by many when you talk to them about the Lord. And that question may have crossed many of your minds, or you may have even been asked the question, and uh, you may not have known what to do with it, or try to avoid it because it's uncomfortable, <laughs> you don't want to think about it. But the question is, how can a good God allow evil and suffering? Why is there evil in the world if God is good? Why, why doesn't he stop it? Why, why is there pain? Why is my child going through such difficulty? Why is that person who does so many good things, why, why are they just having the hardest time? And it's like they just get beat and beat and beat and just can't get out from under the difficulty. Why is it hard? Has anybody in here ever suffered pain? Anybody ever? Whether physical, emotional, spiritual. Has anyone struggled with why there is such devastating evil in the world? Have you ever asked that question? That doesn't mean you doubt God. You just, man, the world is evil. And there's just bad stuff all over the place. Well, we're going to look at that. Today We're not going to jump around and, and avoid the question. We're going to hit it head on. All right? But we have to start with a basic understanding of how it all started. We have to have a, a, a foundation as we dive into this. And it starts with this understanding that was in the question itself. God is good. God is good. And that's not just not something we say. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. It's not just something we shout out. It is true, and we see it in Scripture. Jesus said in Luke 18, 19, no one is good except God alone. That God is good. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's a part of his very nature. Psalm 107, 1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. He's good. He's not just great and high and lofty and majestic, and he is all those things. He's good. He is the very definition of what good is. And, but if he is good, then there can be no ounce of evil anywhere in him. If there's even one speck of not goodness, then he's not good. Mostly good, but not all good. And if he's not all good, then we have no standard of good by which to live, by which to follow. We need an absolute goodness in order to look to, to know how to be good ourselves. And so God is good. So if God is all good and there's no evil in him whatsoever, well, then we look at the world and we see that bad things happen anyway. There's still bad things that happen. And we see that in Scripture as well. In Habakkuk chapter 1, Habakkuk cries out, Oh, Lord, how long will I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? This is a prophet saying this. How long am I going to shout and nobody's going to do anything about it? How long is this going to go on? When is something going to happen? And it's in the, it's in the very second verse of his old book. How long until something happens? God, you're so good. Do something. It's even all the way back into the book of Revelation, chapter 6. O sovereign Lord holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
How long until something happens? Until justice is done? How, how long does the evil and the, the pain and the suffering and the difficulty, how long does it have to go on? When will we have relief, reprieve from the constant refrain of difficulty and problems? When will we get out from under it? Well, you know, in Genesis chapter 1, we see that problems and pain and suffering, none of that was God's original intention. None of it was. God's intention was perfection. God's intention was goodness, which is why after he created everything, he made that exact statement. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Very good. Not just a little bit good. Very good. I mean, we can look at the world today, and it's hard to say that it is very good. I mean, you can look around and say, find little specks. Okay, eh, a little thing over there is good, and this little thing happening over here is good. But to look at it as a whole and say it is very good would be difficult to say today. But that was God's original intention. It is very good. All of it. Very good. You know the first time God said it's not good? When he made man, <laughs> it is not, he, made, he created man and said, it is not good. So he had to make Eve, and then he said it was good. But he said, it is all good. Once everything had been created, it is all good. Well, we're going to look at a man for, for a little bit who was defined by God as good. He was a man who followed God. And dedicated his life to following God at every point, at every juncture. And it was at a, at a time in the world when that was not an easy thing to do. When things were very difficult and hard. And this man's name was Job. Job was a man who followed the Lord well. But he suffered incredible pain. And the best we can tell from the text is Job lived at about the same time as Abraham, somewhere in there. Uh, many Bible scholars actually believe Job was the first book of the Bible written down, even before Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, because that was written by Moses. And so they believe, because really the, how old the Hebrew is in the book of Job, that it may have been the very first one written down. And so he was a contemporary of Abraham, most likely. And God called Job a holy man, a man who followed him. But look at what happened to Job. Verse 13. There was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were, were feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now what you need to know about Job is he's a very wealthy man. He has a lot of livestock. He has a lot of money. His money comes from his livestock. And so the very first thing that happens to Job on this day, a servant runs up to him and says, another country raided our country and your, your livestock just happened to be there. And they fell on us. They killed all the servants that were there. And they took your donkeys and your oxen and they left. And I'm the only servant who escaped. Verse 16. 
While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now again, Bible scholars believe this particular instance, the fire of God, this is lightning. Lightning storm came down, killed all the sheep that he had. And he had a bunch of sheep. Not just the sheep, but all the shepherds who were there and killed all the shepherds, except this one, who comes running up to Job and said, they're all gone. And so just put yourself in Job's shoes. You know, he's a wealthy man, but his wealth comes from his livestock. All his oxen are gone, his ability to plow. All his donkeys are gone. All his sheeps are gone. All the servants who took care of all those things, gone. This is an economic disaster for Job. Verse 17. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So the last of his livestock are gone, all his camels, and all the servants who were with them, all dead, except this last servant who came. But here comes the worst of the news that day. Uh, Verse 18. While he was yet speaking, there came another And said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped, to tell you. All his children, all the servants who were with his children, gone. Gone. So really, just in the matter of a few seconds, Job's world has crumbled. He lost all of his finances, and he lost all of his children lost all of his servants, and he's taking in all of this devastating news just in an instant. I mean, for all of us, one of those things would have been absolutely debilitating, but Job hears all of this news, and look at his response, verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe. That was a sign of grief and great emotion, and he shaved his head and fell on the ground, and he worshiped. I don't know about you, but I don't know if that would be my first response. (laughs) He tears his robe. He immediately shaves his head. He demonstrates the, the loss. I mean, that's a loss of personal glory. And he falls on the ground, and he worships. He worships God. Verse 21, and he, this is what he said as he worshiped. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. I have nothing. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, everything he just did, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. You see, what Job, he was faced with human opponents, all these other nations, the Sabians, the Chaldeans, and he was faced with natural opponents, opponents from nature, the the fire from heaven, the lightning, the the windstorm that came sweeping across the desert and destroyed his kid's house. And it it was literally as though the world was against him. He'd lost everything, everything in that moment. Well, not quite everything. Look over at chapter 2, verse 7. So Satan went out of the presence of the Lord, and he struck Job. With loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. 
Now, this seems just terrible. You ever, have you ever had an experience where you felt like you were at rock bottom and it couldn't get any worse, and then the one thing you still had left was taken from you? Like, it just got worse, and you didn't think it could. It's like when you're outside and everything's bad, and somebody says, well, at least it doesn't rain, and then it starts raining. Well, here's Job. Everything's been terrible. And then all of a sudden, his health goes. And it says these sores are so bad that it feels better to him to take a broken piece of pottery and scrape his skin off. It's got to be some pretty bad sores. And so here's Job, and he's sitting in a heap of ashes. He shaved his head. He's, he's just there, and he's scraping himself because it hurts so bad. From, from the bottom of his foot all the way up his body, just all over, he's got these terrible sores. So he's, he's got this terrible emotional pain. He's got terrible mental pain, the emotional pain from his kids, the mental pain from losing all his finances, and, and the physical pain from these sores that are all over his body. And he's experiencing the worst that the world has to offer. Verse 9, and then his encouragement comes. His wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, Job's wife gets a bad rap. I mean, this obviously is not very encouraging. Uh, she probably shouldn't have said that. Maybe it was like, fine, if you're just going to wallow, just be done with it, I guess. Uh, but she had also experienced the same loss he had. And she was in the midst of her own grief. But we also find out at the end of the book of Job, Job has a, God comes back and blesses Job and he has a bunch more kids. But it never says Job found a new wife. So curse God and died wife was the same wife he had at the end. She stuck with him through it all. They stayed together. And so she says this in Job's response to her. Verse 10. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So up until this point, Job hasn't blamed God for anything. Job hasn't, hasn't been angry with God. He lost his finances. He lost his kids. He lost his health. Everything is turning against him. And so I, 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 we read this in, in Job 1 and 2, and then a minute ago we read you know, Genesis 131, and that God's intention was goodness and perfection, but this is not goodness and perfection. This is something different. So, I mean, what happened between Genesis 1 and Job 1 and 2? Did God change? No. God doesn't change. God can't change. Actually, in the book of James, chapter 1, James, the brother of Jesus, he said, every good and perfect, or every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of sh or shadow due to change. That there's not even the slightest variation in God anywhere. From the moment God spoke the world into existence, all the way through when he brings the new heaven earth down and on into eternity, there is no change. It's the same God, same in every fiber of his being. He is the same. So God doesn't change. So what changed then between Genesis 1, it's all good, 
to Job 1 and 2 where it, almost nothing is good. What changed? Well, here's what changed. Genesis chapter 3. Sin. Sin changed. Sin came. Sin broke the world. I, thought, I actually thought of it like this this morning. I was thinking about it. Got my cup here and a little bit of water. It's like everything in Genesis 1 and 2, God's intention was perfection. It was what God wanted. And, and everything was flowing along. He said Adam and Eve would, would, would uh, converse with God every day. They would walk with him in the cool of the day. They would go on a walk with God. And the imagery, actually from Genesis 1, is, or Genesis chapter 2, it's almost like God is physical there in the garden with them. But every physical representation we have of God, even in the Old Testament, most Bible scholars will tell you that they believe that the physical representations of God in Scripture is Jesus. Walking with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, they believe that, that the fourth man was Jesus. And so many believe in Genesis chapter 2, walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day was Jesus. And it was perfection then. Everything was great, awesome. And then in Genesis chapter 3, sin came into the world and sin broke it. It broke God's perfection. And things were never the same. And sin spilled out onto everything. And see, the problem with that is now that sin has broken it, you can't fix that. You can't fix it. You can put duct tape on it, but it's a styrofoam cup. I mean, it's not going to hold the fix for very long. It's not going to fix it. You can't fix it. What's the best way then to do? What's the best thing to do? Throw this away and get a new one. Which eventually, that's what's going to happen in Revelation 20, 21, and 22. God's going to do away with what is broken, this world. Sin broke this world, and it can't be fixed. We still operate in what is broken because that's just the way everything exists at the moment. We're here in this broken world in order to bring more and more people to Jesus so that they can get out of the broken world, so they can find hope in the broken world. But the world is broken all the same. God didn't break it. Sin did. Sin broke it. And the moment sin broke the world, everything changed. The goodness and the perfection that was supposed to be here was no longer here. Because you can't unbreak what is broken. You can't make something perfect that was perfect and is now imperfect. God can redeem it and give us all new bodies and give us a new world, and he will. But you can't unbreak what sin broke. God's going to fix it one day. We can't, but he will. He will fix it. We operate in this, this, this brokenness to bring people to Jesus. Jesus is going to provide us a new place to live physically with God forever. And that new place... In, when that happens, we did a study on Revelation last year. Check our, if you want to find out, I mean, we went verse by verse through the book of Revelation. It's on our website. But we, we see there that we will have a place to physically live with God 
forever. And that place will be without Satan. It will be without Satan's followers. So there won't be any temptation. There won't be any sin. Sin's existence will be prevented. That will prevent another broken world. That world will not be able to break because there will be no more sin. And what we find at the end of Revelation is in the description of this new world, there's no more pain right at the top of the description. No more pain, no more crying, no more suffering. It's all gone in the new world because sin is gone. The the, the thing that broke this world no longer will exist. But while we're here in this existence, there will be problems. Perfect Jesus actually promised problems. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, because in the world you will have tribulation, trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It's also said again in Acts chapter 14, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Trouble exists. Problems exist. Pain exists. Suffering exists. And God wants us to pursue him in the midst of it. He wants to comfort us through it. I mean, what can we do then? I mean, I mean, really, how can we function some days when there's so much suffering in this broken world? Well, we get that answer from Scripture as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, which is where we're going to be for the rest of our time. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. This church, Corinth, was a church he started. He, had, he, he went to Corinth. He told people about Jesus. So many people came to know Jesus that they started a church. And Paul was the founder. And he, he stayed there for, I, I believe, if I'm remembering right from the book of Acts, it was a year and a half. He stayed there to get the thing going. He appointed pastors to lead it, and then he left. And then problems began to creep up in the church. And people who were anti-Paul and what God wanted to do started to creep up in the church and have very loud voices in the church. And so Paul writes 1 and 2 Corinthians in response to these problems. And he gets very transparent at, at different parts of those two letters. And uh, what, we get, what we're going to read here um, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, is he describes a personal pain. He uses very generic, or very uh, general terms. He doesn't get specific in this. Uh, as many of us tend to do when we're going through something difficult, we don't necessarily always share the details because we're private people or we feel if somebody knows the details and it we let them a little too close to our lives um, for whatever reason. Uh, but here is Paul giving us a glimpse. I mean, you read the book of Acts, you would say, Paul's invulnerable, man. I mean, he goes from town to town, people trying to kill him. One town, they actually drag him out of town, stone him to death, and leave him. And then Paul wakes up, walks right back, back into town to tell more people about Jesus. Like, nothing can hurt this guy. He, he you know, reaches... Uh, starting a fire, a snake jumps out and bites him on the hand. He shakes it off like no problem. Who is this guy? 
Superman. But Paul gives us a little glimpse here of some internal struggle in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he had been receiving from God. He says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. He didn't describe it. There's a wide variety of theological opinions about what this is. Um, but the reason he didn't tell us exactly, specifically what it was, because we're not supposed to know. We just know it's a problem. It could have been physical. It could have been emotional. It could have been mental. It could have been a person. <laughs> you say, well, Paul had a thorn in the flesh to keep him from being conceited. I'm just helping somebody else from being conceited even though I'm their thorn in the flesh. That doesn't give you right to do that at all. He says, the messenger of Satan. If you're working for Satan, you're not working for God. Uh, he says, what, this thorn in the flesh was given to me. It was given to me. It was a messenger of Satan from Satan, but God allowed it to happen. That didn't mean God necessarily was the, the sender, but God allowed it to transpire. He said, well, why does God allow some of these things to happen sometimes? Because we live in a broken world. Because we live in a broken world. If God did not give us free will to walk around this broken world, then we would not have the free will to choose to love him. And if we could not choose to love God, then love does not exist. Because love is a choice. If you don't choose to love God, if there is no choice, and he forces everyone to love him, then that's not love. That's everyone just following along. That's everyone liking God. But love has to be a decision. And because love has to be a decision, we humanity has to have a choice. And we make those choices, and many times we make poor, poor choices, poor decisions. And we choose not to love. And Paul says, for whatever reason, operating in this broken world, he has what he calls a thorn in the flesh, a difficulty, a problem a pain that he's experiencing. And the gist that we get from the text is this isn't just like a daily, uh, you know, this happened over the course of a week and the pain went away, or even over the course of a few months. The, the, the imagery that he gives us and the way he describes it is this is something that is, he's had for years and he feels he's going to have the rest of his life. And so this is what he says, verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Apostle Paul, from what he has been described, the greatest missionary of all time, begging God that he would take this thing away. Now, I've described this before. When it says three times, that doesn't mean he prayed only three prayers. That word times gives us the idea of seasons of life. So for three different seasons of life, we're talking, you know, possibly months, maybe even years, he's begging God for this extended periods, these extended periods to remove this thing. One of the greatest Christians that, I mean, just ob observing, I mean, we don't know every little detail about Paul's heart, but we would, I mean, you're talking about Hall of Fame Christians, Paul's at the top of the list from what we know. He says, three times I pleaded with God to take it away. Three times, three seasons of life 
months and months of time, I just begged God over and over. This thing just hurt, it, it hurt me so bad, and I could not get rid of it. And I was begging God to take it away. Paul, who, who prayed for miracles, and they happened instantaneously. Paul, who prayed that God would bring a young man back to life, and he did. Paul's begging God to take this thing away. And here's God's response in verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Calamities, that, that's life-altering catastrophes, like each one of those things that happened to Job. He says, I'm content even in calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. He's not strong in and of himself. He's strong because God is with him. And that pain he was suffering was a reminder that he needed God. Tony, go back to verse 9 real quick. That word there, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. My grace is enough. My grace is enough. You don't need me to yank, you, yank the pain out of you, Paul. My grace is enough to function. My grace is enough to help you get through this. Turn to me and I will supply you with all the grace and strength you need to operate. Not on your own strength. That's why he said, my, when I'm weak, I am strong. He's not strong in himself. He's strong because of this grace. My grace is enough to make you strong enough for today, my grace is enough for you. You don't need control, Paul. You don't need to know everything. You, Paul, you don't even know, need to know the why. I mean, the book of Job, you can read all 40, uh, what is it, 42 chapters, I believe. And Job never gets the reason why he had to suffer. He never finds out, ever. Not once did God say, this is why. God actually told Job, yeah, stop questioning me. Where were you when I made everything? He says, my grace is efficient for you. My grace is enough for you. You don't need control. You don't need to know everything. You don't need to have power over everything. You just need my power. My grace is everything you need. My grace is everything you need. God will not give you a life where you don't need him. We need him every day. We need him every moment. My grace is enough for you. My grace is enough for you today. Today. God, I need your grace through this season. Well, don't worry about the season. Just worry about now. My grace is enough for you now. We have to trust the Lord to guide us through the brokenness of this world until he brings us a new one. That means there's going to be pain. That means there's going to be struggle. That means there's going to be difficulty. That means there's going to be fear that will creep up that, we, that drives us to the Lord. I mean, even, I mean, us, a son, we have a son with diabetes, and so it's a constant worry. Is another child going to get this because of the way it, you know, I don't know how much you know about type 1 diabetes. We've learned a lot. <laughs> you know, you don't get it from eating certain things. You get it because the mom's got some DNA and the dad's got some DNA, and it mixes together at just the right moment with just the right everything, and it happens. And so 
even this week, we, another one of our kids went to the hospital for a day and figuring stuff out and he ends up being a whole bunch of infections that threw all his numbers out of whack. But there's fear and there's struggle there and, and there's uncertainty there of, God, I need your grace now. Now. And God comes and he says, my grace is enough for you. Just come to me. Just come to me and trust me to guide you through the brokenness of this world. We've seen from Genesis 1, and if you look at the end of Revelation, how much uh, the new world, the new heaven earth that's going to be our home for eternity matches the Garden of Eden before sin came. That God's intention was never pain. God's intention was never sin. God's intention was never imperfection. But it's here. God didn't plan it. But it came because we sinned. And then God used it. God can use anything that we bring into our lives to, to, or anything that happens in our lives. I mean, look at Job. I mean, some things happened because of some other people. Some things happened because of nature took its course. Sometimes things happen that are beyond your control, that are painful, that are difficult. And God didn't plan your pain. But he will use your pain, your pain for his plan. He didn't plan it. It wasn't his intention that you suffer. It wasn't his intention that you suffer. But he will use the pain you experience for his plan. Just like Paul, this thorn in the flesh, this difficulty, this pain, this problem. And God came to him and said, my grace is sufficient for you for today. Just operate today. And Paul wrote out of his experience, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That doesn't mean God makes all things happen. But he takes all things that do happen and he works them together. He weaves them together. Even when it's something that's a part of the broken world that brings the pain. Even when it's our own decisions that bring the pain. God, being God in his all-knowing nature and in his sovereignty, can work it into something we never saw possible. That doesn't, even, that doesn't mean we're going to understand. Like I said, Job didn't understand. That doesn't mean that we may even, honestly, we may not even agree when we're in the throes of it. But, thank goodness, I am not God. Because if I was the one orchestrating the way everything was to lay out, everything would be terrible. For almost every single person. I would try to make everything great for me, messing up everybody else's life, but ultimately that would not make everything great for me. God said, trust me. Trust me today. My grace is enough for you today. Experience today. And I tell you a story, uh, many of you know, and we're going to sing a song that goes along with this story in a few moments. There was a man back in the 1800s um, who experienced great pain, similar, actually eerily similar to Job. It's a man named Horatio Spafford. I was reminded of this story yesterday. I was listening to a biography on Billy Graham. Um, 
and it was talking about a man named Philip Bliss who wrote some hymns, um, and he was a friend of Horatio Spafford's. And Horatio Spafford was a guy who lived in Chicago in the 1800s, and he wasn't astronomically wealthy, but he, I mean, for the 1800s, he was well off, mainly because he owned land, and he owned buildings um, that people rented and uh, brought him income. I mean, he did some other things as well, but that was where most of his money came from. Well, in the middle of all of this, as, you know, he's taking care of his buildings and his property, um, his son gets sick, and his son gets sick, and is sick for a little while, and dies. A young son. Um, sometimes he's eight, nine, ten, somewhere around there. And he dies. And uh, Horatio is just broken. He's got one son and several daughters. And it's, I mean, he's just beside himself. And as he and his wife are going through their grief, the great Chicago fire breaks out. Burns all his buildings to the ground. All his property obliterated. And to complicate the matter even more, records weren't as good back then as they are now. And so nobody knew where one person's property began and another person's property ended because everything was gone. There were no boundary markers anymore. The fire wiped it all out. So he's wiped out financially until they can get all that sorted out and no telling how long that's going to take. He lost his son. He's lost his source of income. And he's going through this emotional and mental grief and a friend of his was a preacher, and he was preaching in England, a guy named D.L. Moody, um, along, and Philip Bliss was over there and helping out. Um, and they were going to go and, and just, they were going to go to England and hang out uh, with these, these, this preaching circuit he was on over there. And so Horatio and his family, they pack up, and they're getting ready to jump on the boat. There weren't planes back then. You have to jump on a boat to go to England. They're going to jump on a boat and go over there. Uh, but as they're packing, word comes to Horatio. Uh, there's going to be this big town hall court meeting where all the landowners have to come. Uh, and if you're not at the meeting, I mean, at the meeting, they're going to determine whose land is where. And if you're not there, you're going to, your, your land's going to be gone. City's going to confiscate it. You have to be there. And it's like the day after tomorrow. And he's supposed to go on the boat tomorrow. And so he tells his wife and his daughters, okay, that's what we're going to do. Y'all jump on the boat. We already bought the tickets. Um, I'll stay for the meeting, and after the meeting, I'll catch a boat ride the next day after that. And I said, okay, fine. So he loads them up on the boat, and uh, uh, they leave, and he goes to his meeting, and then he goes back to the house, and he's getting ready to pack, and a telegram comes. Uh, a telegram from England comes. Um, and it's from his wife. And it only says two words. It says, saved alone. And he thinks, well, wait, well, I don't understand. What do you mean saved alone? And the news came to him, that ship they were on, as it was crossing the Atlantic, sank. Most everybody on the ship survived, except his daughters. All of his daughters died, drowned. And so now here's Horatio, his wife in England with their friends, he in America by himself. His son is gone, his daughters are gone, his finances are in turmoil, and he's at a loss. Again, very similar to Job. So Horatio gets 
the first boat ticket he can find. And he's going to go see his wife in England. And uh, as they're traveling across the Atlantic, he asks the captain. The captain knows who he is. He's talked to him. He says, I want to know about the place. I want you to come and get me when we pass by about the place that other ship sank. And the captain said, well, we can't know exactly where it was. I mean, we can guesstimate somewhere within this range, but I'll come, I'll come and get you when we get close. And so the captain comes down and gets Horatio. And Horatio, the way he tells it, he comes out on the deck of the boat. And he's looking out. All he can see is water, perfectly calm, no storm this day. And he's looking out over this water and the billows of the sea rolling and, 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 and hitting the ship as it's cutting through the, the waves. And he begins to pray and he begins to weep. And the words that he prays, he ends up writing down. And when he gets to England, uh, he gets it all typed up and, and he gives it to his friend Philip Bliss who puts music to it, and it becomes a song, a song actually we're going to sing. And these are the words he wrote, or, or that, that he prayed as he was sitting or standing on the deck of that ship, looking at the, the waters that claimed the life of his daughters. He said, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, whatever my lot in life, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You see, what Horatio Spafford, what Job, what Paul came to realize is that God's grace was enough. God's grace got them through that day. God's grace got Paul through that, and he wrote these words so that we can read them and find comfort today. God's grace came to Job in the midst of terrible heartache, and we can read his story and see how he came through it, and God stood with him. We can, we can uh, uh, hear of Horatio Spafford, who suffered enormous pain, and he gave us words that bring comfort now, 150 years later. God's grace is enough. But we have to ask ourselves the same question. All three of those people had to ask themselves, will I trust God? Will I trust God today, even though there's pain, even though we're in a broken world? Will I trust God today with my daily bread for today, with everything that I need that is enough for today? Too often we do try to pray God out of our life for today. We try to pray our need for God out of our life for today, when really we just need to be praying for his grace for today. And that's the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Give me all I need for today. Tomorrow will come. Tomorrow has enough worries of itself. I will focus today on God's grace. And that will get me through today. And then when tomorrow comes, it's all kinds of new things. We still live in a broken world. There's all kinds of broken things that are going to hit me tomorrow. And God knows the amount of grace I need for tomorrow. And he's going to give me that. But I'm going to continue to function and continue to take one step in front of another and continue to follow God in the midst of a broken world until he gives us a new one and rely on his grace, not on my own cleverness, on my own connivings and, and, and schemes, because it's only through God's grace that we can stand. We can't stand on our own strength. Paul said, when I am weak, I am strong. But it's not his strength. He wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, I just want to stand firm 
I just need, sometimes all we can do is just stand firm. We can't even take an, a, a, a step forward because the way forward is so difficult and so, so blocked. We just have to stand firm on the word of God. My grace is enough for you. And it's amazing grace. We have to rely on God's grace and ask ourselves the question, will I trust him today? Will I trust him today with my daily bread, my, my, with what I need to be enough for now? Will I trust him now and lean into him now and find comfort in him now? That no matter what this broken world brings, no matter what my own decisions bring, no matter what some other human being brings, will I trust him for, for his grace now? And so that's the question I ask. Will you trust him for his grace today? Today it may seem worse than it did yesterday. Maybe. Maybe tomorrow will be a little better than today. Maybe Tuesday will be a little worse. But will you trust him? Whatever hits that day, will you trust him that his grace is enough and he knows how much grace you need to give to you? Trust him. Will you trust him now Will you trust him now, not just with the grace you need? Will you trust him with eternal grace now? If you don't know Jesus, that's where it begins. That's where we get access to the grace to begin with, is believing that Jesus is God's son, that he died so all your sins would be forgiven, and then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. Will you trust him today? Whether you're in the room or you're watching online, will you trust him today and make that decision to follow Jesus and, and, and experience that grace here. Now, will you accept his grace, his gift of grace, gift of grace to you now, whether you need it for the first time or you need it for the thousandth time? Will you trust his grace today? Because his grace is enough. <laughs>